Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Do you struggle with feelings of shame, regret, anger, or other intense feelings that stem from your childhood? The Dear Childhood Me Journal is an invitation to change your relationship with your inner child in the direction of acceptance, love, and empathy. The journal is filled with love notes that serve as affirmations and inspiration for writing so that you are able to reflect on who you are today in the context of who you were as a kid. Created by my friend Known Wells of the You, Me, Empathy podcast and the Feely Human Collective, the Dear Childhood Me Journal is only available for a limited time through May 4th, 2022. Order between now and May 4th, and you receive a bonus download of special prompts and a personalized letter from Known. I'll post a link to order in the show notes. And since this is a limited offer, I'll also link to Known's website so you can check out his other offerings in case you miss out on this deal. Today, I am so excited to share with you my interview with Lisa Oliveira. Lisa is so many things. In her own words, she is a writer, a creative, a therapist, a seeker, an Enneagram 4 with a 5 wing, an INFJ on the Myers-Briggs, a deep question asker, an adoptee, a wife, a mother, a cat mom, a sister, a student of curiosity, and a nature worshiper. I can add to that list by saying that Lisa is also a font of wisdom and compassion. Through her own inner work, unlearning false beliefs she had about herself, many of which stemmed from learning she had been abandoned by her mother as a newborn. She has become a trusted teacher to those who follow her and a trusted therapist to her clients. She has built a large following on social media for her writings about self-worth, radical acceptance, community, and living in our full humanity. What I love most about Lisa is that she shares her wisdom from the perspective of what Irvin Yalom calls a fellow traveler, as someone who is walking the path alongside you, not as an expert or an authority. She is humble and deeply connected to her own humanity. Lisa has just published her first book, which is called Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance. In this new book, she explores our stories and how they affect us. She guides us through reframing the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what we deserve so that we can remember that we are already enough just the way we are. The book guides us toward healing, and the book is tender, hopeful, and inspiring. And it is also utterly practical and down to earth. Today, I chat with Lisa about her own journey and all the wisdom bound up in this beautiful new book. Let's welcome her to the show. Lisa, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. I discovered you on social media. You write such wonderful, helpful, poetic, healing, calming things, and I really appreciate your voice so much, and I'm so excited to talk with you about your own journey and how it has informed your work with others. So welcome. Thank you. It's so nice to be here and so nice to be able to connect with you off of the internet. (laughs) Yes. You thankfully for all of us, you just published your first book, which is called Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance. And the book, which I just finished last week, is really a guide to changing the stories we tell ourselves about who we are what we deserve and our worth. And you do that really through the lens of your own experience. So this book contains an enormous amount of vulnerability on your part. And I want to say how much I appreciated that as I read it. 
especially as somebody who's gone through many similar experiences as you. So, so people can understand your story a bit in a bit more detail and how you came to write this book. I thought we could talk about an important aspect of your childhood first. You were abandoned by your birth mother when you were a tiny infant. So I'm curious when and how did you learn you had been abandoned and in what way did learning that information change you when you learned it? Yeah. So I, I always knew that I was adopted. That had always been told to me, but I didn't know I was abandoned. And that came out in a very painful way. Actually, I was in an argument with my cousin when I was, I think seven or eight years old. Mm. And she yelled at me, at least I wasn't left by my birth mom. You weren't wanted. And I had no idea that that had happened. And she sort of disclosed that I was abandoned And yeah, to hear that someone else in my extended family knew that information, but I didn't, and I had been told a different story for a long time was really disorienting and brought a lot of shame. And I felt like it wasn't something I was supposed to know. And so I kind of shoved down the need to process it with anyone and really held that to myself for a long time because it felt like it was some dirty secret or something. And holding that on my own led me to really deepen the story I told myself about why that had happened and led me to really feel like something was wrong with me because that had been how my story started and that was how I interpreted it and no one around me was really talking about it. So I just kind of, yeah, internalized all of that as me being the problem and me being the thing that was wrong or broken or somehow messed up. And yeah, I held it that way for a long time, which I share about in the book a bit as well. So you didn't go running to your mother, your adopted mother and say, hey, cousin just said this to me. What 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 gives? You didn't talk about it for a long time. Yeah, I think I mentioned it to her and it was kind of spoken as like not a big deal or mm. like what was meant to happen happened or this was God's plan, you know, like this, the ways that people don't know how to hold something painful, that's how it was held for me. And I can understand now that it was uncomfortable and that they didn't know how to talk about it. And a lot of people don't know how to talk about things that are hard. And so they get glossed over or presented as a positive in some way, or just not talked about at all. But I think, yeah, I didn't really get what I needed around that. And so I again, like deepened this story that something was wrong with me for thinking that that was painful when no one else seemed to seemed to hold it that way or reflect that back to me. Mm. So how did you come to understand the pain you were experiencing was something you wanted to heal? Because I imagine, you know, and I know this because I, I read your book, like this just went on for years and years and years for you into your adulthood. How did you come to understand that you were experiencing something painful that you wanted to heal and that you had the agency to do that? I dealt with depression for a long time and depression that went sort of untended to and unspoken about and unnoticed, both by myself and by other people, because I think I I didn't want to be experiencing it. So I just kind of shoved it down. And when I was 14, I attempted suicide and that was really the first time I had been open to anyone about what I was experiencing. I was in a really deep place of pain. And I think we can talk about young people experiencing pain as like, oh, it's just teenage stuff. It's just hormones. It's just this or just that. When after moving through that and having that experience myself, I know just how real that pain is, even for someone who's a teenager. And that was when I started going to therapy and started being more open with with someone about what was actually going on within me. And that was when I experienced the the feeling of having my experience held in a way that was actually nourishing and supportive. And that wasn't someone trying to fix me or make me better even, but more so someone who was just trying to understand me and understand the way I had been holding things and helped me parse out why that had come to be and why it was so challenging. And Receiving that validation and having that experience from a young age led me to continue therapy and continue 
exploring just why certain things were so painful for me and why I essentially hated myself for so long, um, why I thought that I was a mistake and just all these heavy things I was carrying. Being in therapy really was the place where I was able to start looking underneath the surface and noticing the things that weren't actually true, but the things that made sense on how I came to think they were true. And it's been a long process and a process that I honestly still move through and will for my entire life. I think there's this idea that once we come to understand something that it's all better and we're all healed and it's done. But I think another thing I've noticed just through this experience is that it's okay for some of these things to be ongoing and for our needs to be ongoing in some ways. And so it's a it's a healing and a growing and a nurturing that continues in different ways for sure. That's amazing. Actually, that's something I want to talk about a little later in more depth. And I also want to say that I spent many years hating myself and I was not abandoned by my birth mother. And one of the things I love about the way you approach your book is it's not about having gone through some tangible trauma that you can remember or, you know, experience that if, you know, we come into our childhood and our teen years and our adulthood hating ourselves, it doesn't matter. I mean, we might want to explore why it happened, but it doesn't matter why it happened. Like I remember I used to downplay my experience or think something was wrong with me because I hated myself so much and I couldn't pinpoint exactly why, you know, it wasn't that my parents talked to me in a certain way or, you know, I still haven't really figured out why and how I made that shift. And I've been through years of therapy. So, you know, I think part of what I love about the way you write is, you know, your experience is your experience. And part of what you share in the book are sort of mindset shifts that we can make when we're aware that we're telling ourselves stories about who we are that are damaging and mindsets that we can adopt that can help us make the shift from I am not enough to I am enough. And I found these so helpful and I wanted to talk about them for a few minutes. So one of the the mind shifts that you talk about in the book is mindfulness. And so often when we hear the word mindfulness, we think, "Uh uh-oh, I have to meditate. And what you say pretty, pretty quickly is like, while meditation is really helpful for many people, it's also not the only way to practice mindfulness. So talk about what it means to be mindful and more importantly, why this mindset is so important to healing when we are caught in this story of not being enough. Yeah. For me, it's really about paying attention and cultivating awareness and practicing being where we are and noticing what's coming up for us. I think that's really what mindfulness is, is paying attention in the present moment, hopefully without judgment, but Mm -hmm. even if judgment is there, noticing that that's there and exploring like, okay, what do I need now? And I think mindfulness is a word that has become so utilized in a way that can be kind of bypassing or in a way that's like, just do this and everything will be good or meditate in order to feel great. Like all these things that can kind of distract us from what it actually is and why it's actually so powerful. And I think in moving through our stories and the things we tell ourselves and the ways that we relate to ourselves, practicing mindfulness and noticing what those stories are and how they impact us and when they come up and why they might be coming up and what we might want to shift into can allow us space to make a different choice in that moment. And I really think so many of these things are just moment to moment practices rather than big changes or things to expect ourselves to completely do a 180 around all of a sudden. But can we implement these as, you know, day to day moment to moment practices that that we don't have to do perfectly, but that we want to implement in order to support ourselves. And I find that practicing awareness and mindfulness and presence and just noticing and paying attention all give us information about what's going on for us. And it's from that place that we can start choosing something different if and when we need to. And if we don't feel like we can do that, we can at least start honoring what's coming up for us and 
having compassion for what we're experiencing and holding it in a different way if we can. And I think that that's really freeing, honestly, to know that sometimes that's all it takes in a moment. Yeah. I often think about my life being on autopilot. Like it's kind of like when you drive to the store and you you somehow get there, but you don't remember anything you experienced about because you're so in your head and driving is one of those things that by the time you're my age, you've done it a million times. Mm-hmm. And and I feel that's just an analogy, but I feel like in regular life, we are so conditioned to bury our feelings, to not be aware of what we're experiencing until, you know, we're having a panic attack or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. Related to that, because I think mindfulness requires this, the second mindset you talk about is curiosity. So what does it mean in this work to be curious and why is it important? I think being curious in this work really just means being open to what else could be possible and being open to seeing things from a new lens and a new perspective and being willing to take a deeper look at things in order to understand ourselves a little better so that we can then take care of ourselves a little bit better. And I find curiosity similar to mindfulness to be really powerful because it it's an invitation into mm-hmm. what else could be true. And it's an invitation to pause and notice what's coming up and ask ourselves, huh, like this is interesting. Why is this coming up right now? Or what might be causing this feeling to feel really big right now? Or what might've happened that made me respond this way? Or why is this thing so hard for me? Instead of just living that experience and when we add curiosity to it, we can again invite ourselves to notice what's there and to ask ourselves what's going on and to remember that we don't have to stay stuck in that place of autopilot, even though it's so easy to and it makes so much sense why we stay stuck there and get stuck there sometimes. There's, yeah, something really nourishing about adding curiosity also because it just doesn't feel so pressured and it doesn't feel so like I have to change this right now or I have to figure this out, but more so can I just use this lens to explore this a little bit and can I be open to what could be going on before making an assumption about myself or before making a judgment about myself? Can I pause for a moment to make some space here to see what's actually happening so that I can do something that I'm needing in this moment. And it's curiosity sounds and feels kind of vague sometimes, but I think it can really be as simple as like, what else could be true here? What is going on here? What else could be happening? What is contributing to the experience I'm having right now? And can I explore that a little bit? And just starting there can remind us that we have different choices in the moment and can give us the opportunity to then do something different if we need to, instead of reacting in the way we might be used to reacting. Again, for valid reasons, but perhaps not always reasons that are supportive for us in the moment. Yeah, you know, my my wife will often, you know, she works from home now and like I'll get home from my studio and she comes down the stairs and starts to, you know, talk about something that happened during her day, maybe something that's negative and negative interaction with her boss or something that had happened. And my first question is always, tell me more, tell me more. And what I realized Mm -hmm. recently is that I need to ask myself that question more often Mm -hmm. and really dig a little deeper and be more curious about my own angst and my own feelings of, you know, frustration. And that that's something I'm really good at asking other people, but maybe oftentimes not so good. You know, I'm not so good at being curious myself. And this Mm -hmm. reading that in your book was such a great reminder. So let's talk about the mindset of self-compassion for a moment. That's the third that you talk about. And I think this one is hard for so many of us. You know, like we were talking about earlier, I spent many years of my life literally hating myself. And I I felt incapable of self-compassion for many years because I had already rejected myself and written myself off. So I think I get now why it's important, but let's talk about that and 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 talk about, you know, some practices for getting there when it does feel hard. I mean, mindfulness and curiosity are one thing. Self-compassion is is something else. Yeah, a hundred percent. And 
for me too. It felt fake for a long time. And Mm -hmm. in some moments it still does feel like, okay, I don't actually feel this way. So why am I trying to tell myself this? But I think it's really about practicing it, even when we don't always feel it. And it's about practicing orienting to ourselves in a new way, even when we're so used to orienting to ourselves in a really harsh and critical and judgmental way so often. I think self-compassion is challenging because a lot of us don't believe that about ourselves. So it can feel kind of trite or silly or fake to offer ourselves a new language or a new way of being with ourselves. But I think when we can shift out of trying to force ourselves to feel something differently and into practicing being with ourselves in a new way, even if it doesn't change how we feel right away, it lessens the pressure of needing self-compassion to feel like this really lovey, warm thing, which it doesn't for a lot of people, and reminds us that it can actually just be a way of practicing being a little bit more gentle with ourselves. And for some people, it might not look like, I'm so sorry you're having a hard time, self. Like, I love you so much and you're amazing. And I think that's what people can often think it's supposed to sound like. But really, it can also look like, whoa, I'm noticing I'm being really mean to myself right now. Like, can I go get myself a glass of water? Can I give myself a pause from this for a second? And even shifting the way that we take care of ourselves in those moments can be small acts of having compassion for ourselves instead of continuing on the train of that harsh sense of being with ourselves that so often require our own compassion. And I also think that there's something around self-compassion that Kristen Neff who does a lot of research around it, talks about often, which is that it connects us to other people and reminds us that we're not alone. And I think there's something so powerful about even in moments of our own suffering or challenge, pausing to remember, like, I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm not the only one who experiences this. I'm not the only person who has a hard time with this. And even if that doesn't take us out of what we're experiencing, it can at least lessen a little bit of the shame that I think is so often what needs to be like kind of broken through in those moments. And so I, again, similar with mindfulness and curiosity, I think of self-compassion as just a practice and not something that we have to get quote right or do perfectly every time or know how to lean on a hundred percent of the time, but more so can we be willing to practice being a little bit kinder to ourselves Can we be willing to notice how it feels to do that? And if it feels hard, can we use these other ways of getting curious about why it feels hard and even trying to have compassion for that, like having compassion for the fact that self-compassion is really hard sometimes. And it's almost like adding layers upon layers of these different practices and tools and ways of being with ourselves so that we create this sort of buffer when it feels challenging to make it even 1% less challenging, even 1% less overwhelming, even 1% less painful. And when we can do that over time and notice those tiny little changes as being really impactful and meaningful, I think it leads to building a more nourishing relationship with ourselves, which is what I think is the whole point of all of it, is not like ascending to this place of loving ourselves completely, but yeah, like really practicing, just cultivating and a more supportive and kind and nourishing way of relating to ourselves, which doesn't require us to change 100% of everything, but just requires that willingness to practice these things over and over, even when it feels hard to. And I think that's where it can be the most powerful is noticing like, oh, I actually didn't beat myself up so much in this moment where I normally might have. Like, what was that about? What made that supportive? And Yeah, like letting the little moments and little changes be really big and and meaningful over time. I think so often our intellectual understanding of or acceptance of or belief in certain ideas is more solid than our ability to then like use them ourselves, right? So you might know in theory that loving yourself is important. You might encourage other people to do it, but then in, you know, sort of day-to-day situations, you may find that you're not treating yourself the way, you know, you would want to treat other people or you would expect other people to treat themselves. And so the last kind of 
mindset that you talk about in the book is aligned action. And I love this one because it's self-care, healing boundaries, living your values in action. It's it's using the lens of mindfulness and curiosity and self-compassion, you know, and really thinking about how is it that I want to treat myself based on how I think other people should be treated or how I think, you know, as a human, we should all be treated. And how can I apply those principles to myself and and to others? Like, how can I live through this lens, right, of like being, I don't know, I hate the word woke, but like (laughs) waking up to, you know, what I believe and what we all deserve as human beings. So I think that's sort of like, for me, that's sort of how I understand aligned action. But what does it mean to live in aligned action? And, and, you know, this is a such an important part of the healing process. And, and so let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, it is so important. And it can be so tricky when we're not used to taking certain actions or showing up for ourselves in certain ways or doing certain things for ourselves. It can be hard to then put the things that we're wanting to adopt into our lives into practice. And it can be a lot easier to read another list on Instagram of 10 ways to be kind to yourself than it is to actually like choose to pay attention to when you're feeling something and asking yourself what you need in that moment and honoring that need. Like that's a lot harder. And I think that is where we can create so much change for ourselves when we allow ourselves to practice being with ourselves in a certain way, even when we're not feeling a certain way. And I talk about that a bit in the book around how sometimes I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want, like I want to stay up and read something else or scroll or whatever it may be that I feel like I'm, I should or need to be doing for whatever reason. And I know that going to sleep at a certain time is actually like the kinder thing to do for myself because it helps me feel better the next day we can we all know why that's helpful but it's like those little things that we can choose to do for ourselves in order to show ourselves that we are deserving and worthy of being taken care of and that we deserve to know what our needs are and to meet them and that we deserve to treat ourselves the way that we think someone who's deserving of love and care and acceptance should be treated and so often we do have that value for other people we think that humans are deserving of care and love and having their basic needs met and receiving care from other people and having boundaries and all these things. But we forget that we are included in humanity too. And we are included in what we say we actually value for people. And so I think asking ourselves those questions of, yeah, how can I implement the things I value and the things I believe about people and the way I think people deserve to be treated, how can I implement that with myself? And asking what practices and actions we can take in our lives to, and it's not really act as if, but it's almost like showing up for ourselves, even in the moments where we don't think we deserve it or where we question that we should do that for ourselves, choosing to do it anyway and noticing how it feels. And most of the time afterwards, it feels like, oh, this feels relieving or supportive or nourishing or kind or whatever it may be. But I think, yeah, there's something really tangible around knowing that we can make choices and take actions in our lives that support us, even when we don't necessarily feel a certain way. And I think that's where we can show up for ourselves. For example, when self-compassion is hard, we might not be able to tell ourselves something different, but we can do something for ourselves that feels like it's full of care. And in the book, I talk about how it can be as simple as going to a therapy appointment or asking someone for help or setting a boundary or eating dinner and not forgetting to have a meal, like these little things that can remind us that we deserve to be cared for. And again, it's an ongoing practice, which means sometimes it might feel harder and that's just something we can pay attention to. And I know in my own life, a lot of people can assume that A lot of these things are easy for me because I'm a therapist and because that's one of my identities and the one that holds the most power, I think people often associate me with that the most and forget that I'm also just a person who's trying to do all of these things myself too. So yeah, I think aligned action for me has become really important because it is, like you said, 
so easy to get stuck in understanding things and having knowledge about things and harder to let ourselves actually do the work of implementing those things in our lives, which is where I think a lot of the change that we're seeking can happen on a moment to moment basis. So speaking of, you know, kind of being in this for the long haul, we, we touched on this earlier in our conversation and you just brought it up again, that the fact that this, this takes a long time. One of the themes in your work is understanding and working with the reality that healing from trauma or self-rejection or a sense of complete unworthiness is not a linear process, right? It's, it's not simply that you wake up one morning and say, I'm going to change all these mindsets and the story I tell myself about who I am. And then you do. And instantly you feel like a new person. Like, (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing because that'd be great. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. So this process is necessarily long and hard and it's normal to feel frustrated or scared or confused. Like, why can't I get it right? Or why is this so hard for me? Or why do I keep making the same mistakes over and over? Or a big one. This was mine. I have only known myself through this other lens of being small and totally flawed. It's my whole identity. And so it feels scary to shift that lens. So we become attached to our painful ways of relating to ourselves and others And so being patient with ourselves through this process of healing is so incredibly important, right? It's like, it's, I think we expect things to be, it's kind of like any, any sort of movement toward improving ourselves or healing ourselves. I think we think it's just this upward climb. And when in fact, it's like up and then down and then up and then down literally for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you talk so much and share so much about creativity. And I, I've been thinking of healing a lot lately as like a creative practice Yep, because similar to creativity, similar to any kind of practice, it ebbs and flows. There may be times where it feels easier and times where it feels harder. There may be times where we feel more motivated and excited and really into something and times where we feel more dread and exhaustion and no motivation to do anything at all. And I think it happens similarly to a lot of things in cycles and it's secular and it's a spiral and it's not an an upward trajectory, like you said. But I think in so many ways, we're taught to believe that it is. And so we can feel like we are doing something wrong if we haven't yet reached this place of total bliss and happiness and joy all the time. And we're sold in a lot of ways that we're supposed to get to that place and thinking that we're supposed to get to that place can keep us on this loop of feeling like we're never doing enough, that we're never being enough, that we're never acting enough or feeling enough or whatever it may be. And so I think there's also something important about noticing where it's not actually our fault that we think these things and it's not our fault that these things feel hard because we live in a culture and environment that kind of tells us we're supposed to be a certain way, even though it's not at all human to be one way all the time. And it can be liberating to remind ourselves that we don't have to reach a certain point or get to a certain place before we can practice these things over and over again and let it be messy and let it be imperfect and let it be challenging sometimes and easier other times. And yeah, like can we just embrace that it's going to be messy and uncomfortable and hard sometimes, but it can also be really profound and meaningful and beautiful and joyful sometimes too. And I think that's something that I have really deepened my understanding of is it's okay for healing to not be a destination or a permanent place that I get to. It's okay for it to be something I experience differently over time and something that requires different things of me over time. And something that may, you know, come up at different seasons in my life. I just had a baby, for example, and that brought up a lot of wounds around adoption and abandonment and like all those things that I've done so much work around. But yeah, those wounds came up in a different way and I'm having to move through them in a different way now. And it's, I could have very easily felt like I was moving backwards because of that. But I think it's kind to remind ourselves that we can't actually move backwards we are integrating new things in new ways and maybe things get poked at because of new experiences we have or new seasons we're in, but all of it is part of healing and growing and being a person. And I think when we can try to remind ourselves of of that, there can be a lot less pressure for 
healing and growth and development to be these things we're supposed to accomplish or achieve, but more so can they be just ways of being with ourselves that feel different than they might have before? You mentioned the word integrating and the the last section of your book is really all about that. And there's this quote by Cheryl Strayed, which I think about all the time. It's so helpful to me. And it says, whatever happens to you belongs to you. Make it yours. Feed it to yourself, even if it feels impossible to swallow. Let it nurture you because it will. Mm-hmm. And for me, the idea here is that we own our story, right? Our our life experience, all of it. And we begin to understand that even the mistakes and the shameful stuff, past and present, or those times when we feel like we're slipping backwards, right, are part of us. It's what they're what make us human. They're how we learn and grow and change. And we are lovable and worthy. We have always been lovable and worthy, even when we were making those horrible mistakes that we still have pangs of anxiety about years later. I have this piece of art that I made once that says, you are not your mistakes. And what's interesting is I posted Mm -hmm. it on Instagram and there was a huge argument about whether or not that was true. Mm. (laughs) But this was a reminder to myself that I made so that I could be conscious that I am not defined by my my past or my current mistakes or it's not always mistakes. Mistakes is such a loaded word, but also just the ways in which I feel like I'm not progressing at the right rate or whatever This idea has been transformational for me, this idea of integrating all of myself. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on integrating the messy parts of ourselves and loving and accepting ourselves just as we are. Like, I think that's the hard part because this isn't a linear process, because all of us have stuff in our lives that we, no matter how much work we do, we still feel pangs of shame about things. We still feel guilty. We still feel badly that we hurt that person who doesn't speak to us anymore. We still, you know, all of these these things, but this idea of integrating those into the, like the wholeness of who I am in this really beautiful way is, is has literally been like, and it's only for me really happened in the last five years, has been the most profound work I've ever done. Because I wanted, I wanted things to be in a binary or I wanted to compartmentalize. And I, I had to learn that I can be a good person, I can be lovable, and I can also have made these mistakes or done things in my life that I regret or, you know, whatever the thing is that I feel bad about. Yeah. I think that is some of the most profound work that we can do in integrating all of these different parts of who we are and not needing to compartmentalize ourselves in order to feel like we're enough or not needing to cut ourselves off from things we've done or things we've felt or experienced in order to be deserving of our acceptance and compassion now. And I think that too is an ongoing process. And there's something so healing about understanding that we don't have to pretend like we haven't done certain things or get rid of certain parts of who we are or banish certain experiences we've had in order to remind ourselves that we're actually whole humans, even including those parts of us, and that those parts of us exist for a reason and those experiences happened for a reason and we do the things we do for a reason, even when we don't understand what that reason is or why why that happened in the way it did. Even the most horrifying, disgusting, painful, shameful parts of us and things that we've done, even those parts of us, I believe, deserve compassion and forgiveness and tenderness and understanding. And I think there's something profound about that because it also allows us to to notice that in other humans as well, which I think can bring us closer to one another when we can see the humanity in other people and in ourselves, Mm. when we can see that we were doing the best that we could with what we had. And that often means not showing up in the way we wish we did, but it's almost like, yeah, can we integrate that and let that be what it was and notice how it's informed who we are now and can we hold ourselves in the messiness of all of that? And in the, like, it almost feels like 
can we let ourselves be like really unfinished and unpolished and not put together and not like in conclusion around all the things we've done, but can all of that open messiness just be a part of what it means to be a person? And can we remind ourselves that we're just people and we're messy and we're not supposed to be a different way? Even if other people tell us we should be. Yeah. Right. Like honoring your own sense of who you are over. I mean, Brittany Brown talks a lot about like feedback from others and, you know, when to listen to feedback and when to, you know, and I think that's, that's important because so often we're being bombarded with, you know, information from other people that, you know, something we've done is horrible. And, and so we need to find that place where we can love and forgive ourselves, even though the noise is overwhelming. And that, I think sometimes that's the hardest, the hardest place to be. Yeah. It can be so hard when we think we might need forgiveness or understanding or acceptance from other people, especially people that we've hurt or people that we've done things we wish we didn't do with. We can think that in order for us to honor our humanity now, we need them to as well. And so often they don't. And there's a reckoning in understanding that that may never happen. We may never receive acceptance of an apology or whatever it may be from people or experiences we've had in the past. And can we offer that to ourselves now? Can we honor that offering it to ourselves may not replace what we don't get from other people, but it can be a way of honoring our humanity in the ways that we have control over and in the ways that we have a say over. And I think that is a profound act of self-trust, of trusting it's okay for me to accept myself and accept all of the messiness that involves what it means to be a person, even when someone else doesn't. Can I be with the discomfort of that and still honor that it's okay? Can I hold the pain that might come up around that and still honor that that it's okay and that I can be with myself in a way that feels supportive and nourishing now in spite of what's happened or what I'm not able to resolve with other people or with past experiences or whatever it may be? Right. Can I, can I, can I enact, can I take responsibility and forgive myself even when I can't get that from others? And that's so, so hard sometimes. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this notion of possibility. So this was a huge one for me as I was going through my own transformation in my thirties. I spent most of my life thinking in terms of being a victim and also being flawed and undeserving And it was a really huge shift for me when I began talking to my therapist about this notion of agency. And I began allowing myself to believe it was possible for me to change and for my life to become something I treasured. I even adopted this tenant that I have continued to follow, which is if it is possible for me to create a negative story about who I am, it is possible for me to create and have and experience the opposite story. And Ultimately, I ended up choosing the opposite, which was really life-changing for me. And your mantra is, let it be possible. And I love that. So talk a little bit about what that is sort of meant in your life, this let it be possible. Yeah, there are so many things that have unfolded for me personally and in my story and in you know, spending years having a lot of questions and no answers. There are so many specific and then also just non-specific things that have become possible because I opened myself up to them being possible. And that can sound really cheesy and it can sound kind of kind of corny, but I think it's actually really like it's a really deep experience of beauty mm. and presence and just aliveness to let ourselves even be open to possibility. And I find that to be really comforting because it doesn't mean I always have to necessarily believe something's going to happen. It doesn't even mean something specific will happen. Exactly. But even just like positioning myself to be open to what's possible automatically creates more spaciousness, even in my body. Like when I just even just thinking about the word possibility, I feel like 
yeah, like it feels like my body just opens up a little bit. And I think that's true in my life as well. And it's so easy to cut ourselves off from it when we don't believe we're deserving or when we're not able to use that lens for so long. But I think when when we can invite that in and allow it and be willing to hold that lens for ourselves, so much opens up that we couldn't have seen or noticed or felt until we allowed ourselves the possibility of that happening. And again, I think possibility is sort of, it's like this lens that we can return to over and over again, even when we forget. And I think the question, like, what else could be possible can be so helpful in the moment when I'm telling myself something and I'm sure that it's true. And when I ask that question, I'm like, oh, actually, maybe this isn't true. Maybe something else is possible here. Maybe there is something else going on. And then I think it can also just be a beautiful way of orienting our lives to like the bigness of what it means to be alive and what what it means to cultivate the things we want and the things that that bring us to life. So I think possibility is just a really powerful way of of opening ourselves to the world in small moments and also just in yeah, in the experience of being alive. You just became a mom. And so I have two questions for you. <laughs> so, and you referred to this a little bit earlier, but I'll start with the first. So given your own personal experience, how does it feel to have brought a child into the world? Like what's that experience been like for you? Not that, not that it's been one feeling. I'm sure it's been all over the place, but yeah. Yeah. It, it's something I'm still integrating because it still feels so new. But I think what I've been noticing the most is how it's sort of adding a layer of healing to me because I feel like in a way, whenever I give her what she needs, when I mirror to her, her own goodness and her wholeness and her enoughness, it feels like I'm giving myself what I needed. Mm. It feels like I can look at her and see in her what I really needed to see in myself for a long time. And when I look at her and I see someone who's so lovable and so good and so enough without having to do anything, I remind myself that that's how we all came into the world, regardless of what our circumstances were. And yeah, it's been really profound and healing in ways that I'm still kind of wrapping myself around and trying to understand. But those are just a few things that I've been noticing coming up that feel really, that feel like they'll probably take a long time to actually like make sense of and integrate fully. Yeah. Cause I can imagine, you know, as she gets older and it starts talking and her will, you know, starts to become more present, yeah. it's going to become more complicated. And I'm sure you think a lot about how to raise a kid who grows up truly believing they're enough, right? Yeah. That feels like a gargantuan task. Yeah, it definitely does. And yeah, I try to remind myself that I don't have to do that perfectly. Like I just, I just have to. That's right. You won't do it perfectly. No, absolutely not. Like it's impossible for any of us to. Yeah. Yeah. And I remind myself like, yeah, can my role as a parent being willing to do my very best and being willing to honor her for exactly who she is until she tells me otherwise who she is, can that be enough? Can imperfection be enough? And Mm. I think just coming back to like, yes, it doesn't have to be perfect. And Mm. I can still create a foundation that feels nourishing and supportive and loving. And Mm. I can still do the things that matter the most, even when imperfection will happen constantly, I'm sure. Yeah, I think modeling for kids your own self-awareness is so powerful. Okay, so we're going to do some rapid fire questions. Take your time on these if, you know, <laughs> I tried to make not make them too hard, but I love to, I've been, recently I've been ending all of my episodes with some rapid fires. Okay. Book that changed your life. Mm-hmm. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Mm-hmm. Favorite album when you were a teenager. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be the favorite, a favorite. I was really into Incubus when I was in ninth grade, like obsessed with them, which feels really random, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. If you were not a therapist, what would you be? Uh, A writer, which I think I'm 
leaning into more and more. That's right. You you are a writer. And I actually, before I ever read your book, I followed you on Instagram now for probably a year. And you're such, your 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 voice there is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I so look forward to everything you post. So Thank if, you. and I will link to your Instagram and your website in the show notes so folks can find you. Okay, two more questions. Something you tell yourself every day. Um, it's okay to not know yet. Mm, that's a good one. Okay, last one. Your current most treasured routine. I've been making this. It sounds so fancy. It's not fancy. <laughs> but I've been making this cacao drink at night with mm. oat milk and cacao and uh, maple syrup and vanilla extract mm. and heating it up. And every night I've been having that and it's just been such a treat and feels like a little ritual. Mm. And yeah, a reminder that I deserve something nourishing at the end of the day. Rituals are so important. It's actually one of the things you talk about in your book. Amy, who is my head of retail and product development, is a wonderful human being. And she has, she got this comfy chair in her she put she put in her bedroom and every morning she's started in the last couple of weeks since she got the chair she's been waking up making herself a cup of tea and sitting in the chair and looking out the window before she does anything else and Mm. and I just like it's such a beautiful I think example of she and I talk a lot about you know we both work a lot and we we, we work together and we're always talking about how we can take better care of ourselves because She's in her 40s. I'm in my 50s. We're like, you know, we're tired. <laughs> and so it's just I, I, I personally like love a good self-care routine. So that's lovely. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really wonderful conversation. And I will, as I said, post to your book so folks can pick it up or order it or check it out from the library. It's really wonderful. And And I have done a lot of work on myself over the last 20 years, and I learned so many new things by reading your book and thinking about things in new ways. So that is, it felt like a gift. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, I appreciate who you are in the world and everything you share. And it's been an honor to get to chat with you. Thank you, Lisa. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.